Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this issue of the Voices of Africa podcast. I am fortunate to be joined today by Sheila Karma. Sheila is almost my neighbour. We live not too far apart in Habara and Botswana. But more than that, she's a very accomplished policy advisor. And prior to working in policy advice, she was a CEO of um, Botswana's biggest diamond mining company, De Beers. She left the Beers in 2010, moved to Accra, where she became the natural resources advisor at the African Center for Economic Transformation. She went on to the World Bank, the African Development Bank, and she spent a really good proportion of her career advising governments in Africa on natural resources, how to introduce and implement uh, policies to ensure sustainable development and best outcomes for mineral-rich and oil-producing countries. She's now a non-executive director at Tallow Oil, and she's consulting in her own independent capacity. She has recently launched a website, I know, sheilakarma.com, and you can read some of her commentary, observations. There's a podcast channel up there too, Sheila. But tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing over the last year. I know you've been incredibly busy. Thank you very much for having me, Marcus. Yes, I have been busy. I mean, the idea of retiring is that slow down. I'm afraid I have not succeeded. But what I'm doing really is I've put together a personal portfolio of three things. One being, as you rightly said, to serve as a non-executive director on corporate boards. The other is that I'm writing. I've just published a book. It's titled Corporate Governance. And it's a personal perspective of a boards of mineral oil and gas companies, but specifically companies in which the state has an interest. So that's a big chunk of what I'm doing together with the podcast and other things. I'm also looking at writing my memoirs. My time at Anglo-American and BS, I'm working with an agent in Dallas, USA, and that's coming along nicely. Finally, I do consulting work, as you said. I've been doing work for the African Development Bank in eight countries looking at the effects of COVID-19 pandemic on supply chains specifically. And in between all that, I'm gardening, as you know, as my neighbor, I'm very keen on rose gardens. So that is uh, the fun side. But other than that, like the rest of the world, Marcus, I have been grounded. Indeed, I have. I tried to fly out this week, actually. It would have been my first trip for some time. But in the event, the person I was going to visit contracted COVID, so that was cancelled. I was literally on my way to the airport. So I am grounded like you. I wonder if we could start where we're at, really, and and COVID-19, and specifically how you think, or you mentioned the work, the consultancy you've been doing for the ADB. Has the mining industry in particular performed during the COVID pandemic? I suppose I'm specifically interested to know whether the industry has really stepped up to the plate and been capable not only of maintaining and running its operations in this tough social distanced environment, but whether it's really stepped up and and supported the community around operations as well. 
perhaps you give us an observation of what you've been seeing across the continent. So the question, has the industry stepped up to the mark? The, the answer from my perspective is a resounding yes, because these are unprecedented times and nobody could have anticipated that in the early part of 2020, a virus would essentially affect the world in the way that it has. And so to be able to respond to that unprecedented event in itself, I think, speaks to some level of resilience. But let's put some uh, context to that. So, you know, you and I speak about mining and, and it, as if it's a single composite thing. And on some level it is, but on another it is not. Mining is really different industries with different commodities, uh, with different levels of sensitivity to events like a pandemic. And so to the extent that you have different commodities, some of which are bulk and they need movement through rail and ports, when you have an event like this, they become more vulnerable. By contrast, to the extent that you have other products like diamonds that can be lifted in small quantities, they then become less susceptible. So, so I think it's important for your listeners to just understand that. Having said that, the main driver of what happened to the mining industries on the continent was not so much the pandemic itself, but the emergency measures that were taken by the individual countries. And this is where you see the differences. And this is where you see the challenges that face the operators in different countries. So let's take South Africa, for instance, which is a, mine, a big mining jurisdiction in the region. So that country shut the entire country sometimes in March to mid-April for near uh, six weeks. And with the exception of coal, all the mines were closed. However, the mining industry in that country very quickly through the Mineral Council of South Africa, which is the equivalent of the Chamber of Mines, engaged the government and agreed rules that would enable people to go back to the workplace. Now, that is a measure of resilience, the ability for them, based on enlightened self-interest, to say, look, it doesn't have to be like this. We can fix it. And if you give us the new rules of engagement, we can then do this. The result is that by the end of last year, operations in terms of production had bounced back to the levels of about 80%. Now, let's speak to the specifics of whether or not the industry has been sufficiently responsive to the needs of the communities. Whether it was in Ghana, whether it was in the DRC or South Africa, mining companies came together with the host governments and essentially, particularly in the early stages, and assisted in several ways. And the most important was material. In South Africa, the companies put together something like a million US dollars to buy PPPs. In Ghana, the government and the chamber did the same. I don't know the order of magnitude of the actual financial contribution. But there has been an enormous amount of work done by mining companies to fill that gap. A specific area that is very important that was affected by the pandemic was the supply chain and small and medium enterprise companies. In South Africa, for instance, all of the Anglo-American group decided that for one, they would not cancel any contracts. They would not invoke the first major clause on the contracts. Instead, what they did was um, they in some cases, prepaid suppliers to enable them to be able to meet their obligations with respect to payments of salaries and other things in the understanding that they would be cash trapped because there was no activity during that initial lockdown. 
So those are just some of my indications of how well I think the mining industry responded. The same was here in my home country, Botswana. Botswana, the joint venture between the government of Botswana and DBS also sprang into action and, among other things, helped galvanize uh, small businesses to produce masks that not only help protect the public, but also generated income for several communities. So that would be how I see it, Marcus. Thank you for sharing those insights, Sheila. I certainly, your observations chime with, with some of mine, certainly when it comes to how um, industry supported the communities at this difficult time. I can think of examples of sort of mining jurisdictions around the world, oh, sorry, around Africa, where um, actually communities were wholly dependent on the support, the medical facilities, the, the sanitation provision provided by the mining companies. And actually, government was relatively absent, unable to reach, in some cases, these remote locations. Yeah, the one thing I, I wanted to recognize is, and, and this is something that has always troubled me, and I write about it in my book on governance, especially the role of state-owned entities. One of the things that I found, or where there was no evidence of that, was with respect to mineral companies that are wholly owned by the state. Yeah, and, 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 and there's a disconnect there because I would have thought that in these circumstances, this is an opportunity for entities like that to spring into action and take a leadership mm. position and ensure the level of commitment that those countries expect of uh, foreign investors by setting an example. So you're disappointed by the response of state mining companies? Well, I don't see evidence of it. It, it may well be yeah. that it's there, but I've done a lot of research over the last yeah. uh, six months, and I don't see that coming forward as much as I see evidence of the interventions by foreign uh, or privately owned or publicly listed companies. It may be that the companies mm. publicize their work better, but to be sure, my sources are not the companies themselves exclusively. My sources are also mining and journalists who have no vested interest in stating anything other than the fact that they see them. You referenced there um, that perhaps the private sector are better at publicizing their activities than, than governments or, or state mining companies. I wanted to talk about this issue of, of perception and the image of the industry. You've been clear to point out that it's an oversimplification to talk about the industry when different components of the industry are really very different in their own right and depending on the commodity and some have incredibly complex value chains, others are slightly more straightforward. But just in the last two, three years, and you know, we've had the, the Brumadino tailings dam disaster in Brazil. The, towards the end of last year, we then had the destruction of the, the gorge caves in Western Australia. At the beginning of this year, I think I'm right in saying we've had the prosecution of, of Benny Steinmetz in a Swiss court for nefarious corrupt dealings in Guinea related to a big mining asset. Dan Gertler's in, in the headlines now for his activities in the DRC and the mining sector. The industry continues, I would argue, to be characterised by bad news and to be seen very much as a, a simply extractive industry. These are sophisticated companies in, in the sector. Why is it they've been so woefully poor at overcoming this admittedly oversimplified perception of the industry, but nonetheless very powerful one of, a, of an industry that isn't necessarily aligned with governance practices and working in the interest of society in which they're invested. So 
first, let, let me say that I don't necessarily agree with you that mm. the perception is the reflection of the failure or inability of industry to communicate. So, so let's contextualize that and say I'm not buying into that argument. <laughs> what I'm buying into is that the perception persists. And so my sense would be that the question is, why, despite the efforts by the industry, both communicating but also tangibly what they do mm. in the boots on the ground, why is this perception persisting? I think it's, it's really, uh, for me, the big question. And with that, Marcus, I think there are several reasons. First, let's, let's just take your question. You gave me three examples there. The dam in uh, Brazil, the archaeological sites in Australia, Beni, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So when I look at the sticks of uh, the number of mines that have since been opened in South Africa since the pandemic uh, following initial closure, I count 385. Now, you've just named four incidences, and I've just given you one country and 380. So the statistics don't speak to the reality. What speaks to the reality is media coverage, which is to say, if you have a person like Benny and the outcome of the court case, that, for whatever reason, attracts more news. It, it just seems to me that is the reality we're dealing with. But we live in a world that consumes the negative news are a lot better than the positive, is the, the headwind that any industry, including mining, faces. The second reason I think uh, we, the perceptions persist is also the public narrative, whether it is political rhetoric or civil society activism, and the prevailing level of trust worldwide in uh, industry, in government and big business. When you put all that together, mining is swept along with that tide. The question then becomes, why the obsession with mining? Sadly, for me, it's ironic. It is precisely because mining industries come to, say, Africa or Latin America or South Asia in countries that are relatively impoverished, in communities that are also relatively impoverished and take the risk investing hugely that they become the only show in town. And because they become the only show in town, the expectations of what they should deliver invariably are disproportionate. Multiply that with uh, the levels of poverty, unemployment, and growing populations. You know, the lag time is just almost infinite. And I think it is this inability by mining companies to ever reach a level at which they can fully meet the expectations that as long as that inability to fully satisfy these expectations persists, the assumption is that they are not doing enough. And, and I, I think those are just some of the few reasons that I see, but it isn't for lack of communication. Now, you could argue, mm -hmm. sure, Sheila, but it's their, their baby to fry. Now, when you are a mining executive, you are, you, are, you are faced with a choice. Can I invest? Is it worth investing time communicating on something where I know the expectation is disproportionate to reality, therefore I will never succeed? Or do I just work on the basis of what I believe is the right thing to do? And I think most 
executives that have accepted that this is not a battle they can win and that the best is to do the right thing and leave it at that. Well, thank you for those insights. I wanted to move on and talk about renewable energy and the trend, thankfully, to invest in renewable energy and everything that that implies, namely securing the rare earths and other metals that are a core component of electric vehicles, electric uh, batteries and energy storage. And we know that some jurisdictions in Africa are very rich in, in cobalt and, and lithium and some of these key components for battery storage and electric vehicles. We've seen companies like Tesla, their share price at exorbitant levels. This trend seems not to be um, dissipating. Do you worry that these dominant manufacturing countries that will be looking to source these rare earths and metals will employ tactics that will alter the sort of geopolitics of the continent and, and specifically these producing countries, and that you can envisage sort of either direct or proxy battles being played out between China and America and Europe or, or other manufacturing countries. Is that something that you've started to observe or that you worry about? I'd be interested to hear. So I'm not a skeptic, but I think if I'm anything, I'm a Pan-African and I'm a pragmatic person. So the way I see things is that when there's a drive for demand towards any minerals, the burden is on the African governments to design the policies that position themselves to profit from that. And this is my focus area, rather than worry about whether some mm. other person in the countries that import these materials may not mean the African region well. If you do that, my sense is that you get nowhere because let's be honest, it's a competitive world and somebody is always thinking primarily from their perspective and you might translate that to mean they don't mean well. I think that we should accept as a given. There's somebody there, they're looking at their self-interest and that's how they're coming into Africa. We know that then the question is, how are we preparing ourselves to interact with those people in a way that does not place us at a disadvantage? When I was a school girl, and they said we were, Africa is going to become independent and have self-determination. That was my subsequent interpretation of that self-determination, is that we would go on proactive position and meet the world halfway to make sure that we too were part of the conversation of what happened, particularly to our resources. So, no, I don't, I, I don't worry about that. I see it as, a, as an opportunity. Will there be some geopolitical tension, nevertheless? Some people argue there already has been. Some people argue that the Dodd-Frank clause that basically addressed conflict minerals coming out of uh, the Lake District in Africa was de facto America's way of ensuring that there was a, not so much a level playing field, but that using that, American companies could have an advantage which they perceived at the time to be fast slipping uh, into Chinese territory. So some people argue that that war has already started. But as I said, as far as I'm concerned, assuming that that is correct, then the African government should have been engaged in the United States and making sure that those clauses were not placed in them at a disadvantage. That, let me speak also to the notion of rare ads. So for you and I, laypersons speaking English, rare means in limited availability. Let me just say for your audience's sake that in minerals, when we say rare ads, we don't actually mean that. 
actually rare earths occur geologically in more frequency than regular minerals. Rareness in this instance just means they very rarely occur in even enough quantities for what your average investor or geologist consider feasible to mine. Now, if you have the Teslas of this world and the appetite for electric cars, those otherwise traditionally marginal deposits may well be now considered not marginal. And therefore, this rareness may just go away, even as we know it. Finally, actually, on the continent, though we know the availability of certain substances, the only country really that has even remotely explored for rare earth is South Africa, but even then, very little. So it suffice to say that there may well be a hell of a lot more than we think uh, if we just undertake exploration. Finally, guess who has the most rare earths in the world? It's China. So if they are geopolitics, they are likely to be the rest of the world in China before, in my view, they uh, become a major issue on the African continent. Wow, well, that was an education. Thank you, Sheila. My last question, if I may, I wanted to turn to the oil and gas industry. You've been counselling governments, not just in the mineral sector, but also in, in, in oil and gas policy as well, I know. And you're currently serving as a, a non-executive director on an oil company board. There's no doubt that the pandemic has introduced huge challenges for the oil and gas industry. And what you've just been discussing, namely the flow of investment into the renewable sector and the real growth of that sector has, has led to oil and gas being perhaps, well, not perhaps, less in vogue and oil prices being at stubbornly low prices. Although I know there's been an increase over the more recently and we've got back up to a sort of a normalised level. I'm not going to speculate as to where the price of oil will go once vaccines are, are sort of more ubiquitous and uh, people are travelling again. But I do want to invite your thoughts on, on the industry as a whole and in the observations of many, the industry's real slowness to adapt to renewable energy and clean tech. I've spoken to you about this before, so I, I know that I'm inviting you to tell me that that's not necessarily the case. But I am reminded, too, in fact, I saw something written yesterday in, in preparing for this interview, that of all the sort of clean energy spending by the world's biggest oil companies over the last five years, a quarter of it has been performed by one company, one company only, which begs the question, what are the others doing and why are they not up to par and, and up to speed? Why is it that the industry has been really as slow as it has been to embrace low carbon investments? And perhaps you could give us some insight into exactly what proportion of, of portfolios are now invested in low carbon. We've seen big statements this year from BP. The reference I gave you a little earlier was actually Total. So there are companies who are really progressing. Some would argue very belatedly. But I'd, I'd just like to get some, your perspectives for the benefit of our audience as to this industry and its future and its outlook. So I hope you realize, Marcus, that uh, if you had only asked me this question, we would have been able to manage probably five episodes of your podcast. <laughs> so for our so last question, you, 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 you pack a punch. Let me try and, and unpack the questions as I see them in some logic, because uh, you've said a mouthful. For one, uh, you know, why has the industry been slow? Two, why is there no synergy? Why are we seeing, you know, different actions out of majors? 
leading to potentially different outcomes, what is in the horizon. So I'll try and, and take them in that order. But as usual, <laughs> as you can see, I, I was trained never to get caught up, Marcus, because I have many <laughs> friends. <laughs> I got to be careful what I say. People might be upset. Seriously. I mean, let's that the fossil fuel space, it, it really is driven from two angles. The first being the oil space. And uh, oil emissions, uh, including through flaring, we are told by scientists, account really for the world's biggest source of global warming. And so that is where the focus has been. By contrast, gas, whether associated with oil or not, is deemed to be potentially clean, subject to technology. And so you've got within the same petroleum space a product that is considered particularly bad for climate change and one that is at least in the interim solution. So it's important for your listeners to understand that in the petroleum space, we have this difference. Now, as it happens, most of the oil companies very typically are both oil companies and gas companies, almost all of them, largely because the value chains upstream and to a limited extent midstream are very much the same. And even more importantly, because almost invariably when you produce oil, you also have some associated gas with it. And so they capture it in the process, uh, those who don't flare. So that's the big picture. So when we then ask them to move away from fossil fuels, in the current dispensation, they have an option to dump oil and stay with gas, at least in the interim. But many of them, gas is proportionately a much smaller component of their investment and therefore revenue. And they would be basically having to define themselves going into the future. It's a hell of a lot easier just to say, look, we're getting out of petroleum because it's like giving away or walking away from 90% of your core business and still assuming you are in business. It's, it, it, so, so that's the, the challenge I think some of the oil companies have had. Why is the transition slow? My guess is, and I, I can't speak for oil companies, but my guess is this, that if you think about it, you are asking a great big African elephant bull to turn around like a snake with that same level of agility. And so these companies are heavily invested. And so you are asking them to divest very quickly. I suspect there's no such thing, not given this, the order of magnitude of the financial commitment. So I would imagine dislodging themselves from the investment they've already made, the commitments they've made to the bankers for a return on investment over 50 years, et cetera, et cetera. Those are some of the logistics. And then the investment in R&D, in people, in physical infrastructure. Think about this. When we ask BP to divest, not only are we asking them to move away financially, we are also asking them to decommission huge pieces of engineering infrastructure. Let's see. They have to think about what are we going to do with this equipment? Who's going to fund the cost of decommissioning? Something which, by the way, is now for all intents and purposes a sunken cost. There's nothing coming in the future in terms of revenue to compensate for that cost. So I'm trying to give you a sense of the level of investment and the logistical challenges. 
Now, those were private companies. Let's move closer to home. You spoke earlier about geopolitics. And then you have state-owned entities like the traditional Aramcos of this world, the gas corporation mm. in Iran and Iraq, in Russia, in Nigeria, in Algeria. These companies, they have a completely different set of problems. And their problem is not just everything else I've stated, is that when you pull the plug out of Nigeria's sole breadwinner or Algeria's sole breadwinner of one of Egypt's biggest contributors or Angola, what you have done in one fell soup is change the fate of a whole country and its people. So if you put that cocktail of issues, I hope your listeners will agree with me. Nobody's moving fast here. And it's not a, a function of mm. not wanting to. It's just the reality of what they are confronted with. Now then, somebody will then say, wait a minute, Sheila, but they just pulled out. The truth is, this has long been coming. And what we're seeing now is a negotiated exit plan. It's not an exit, at least as I see it. Because once Shell CEO, as he did January of last year, says to the shareholders, we are now a utility company, which is to say we are moving out of oil. He's buying time saying, okay, here is the top line. This is my two-seconds elevator speech and my commitment to you. My guess is he now goes back and he says, now, folks, I've made a commitment to the shareholders. You make it happen. Find me a strategy. Mm. And then all the elements I've spoken about come into play. And then they come to the board and they say, well, you're looking at about 40 years. And then they have to negotiate with all the stakeholders whether 40 years is reasonable and somewhere in between. BlackRock comes and says, look, I am the law around here and this is Mm. what you're going to do. And I'm going to put the squeeze on you financially. And then you have the heir to the British monarch also with BP and (laughs) us coming together. And then you have an avalanche. And then it's just a case of what the details are like. So, so, so that is that is the big picture as I see it. And and I want to just sort of go back to the geopolitical. Now, this is what worries me, Marcus. Is what's going to happen? Because now BlackRock has spoken. Now BP and the heir apparent have said yes. Bye bye, black sheep. And now we got President Biden. He's saying, you know, I'm going to put a trillion US dollars or whatever many number of trillions behind green energy. Well, you know, the Fed can print money. Can the Africans print money too? You know, the economics of uh, monetary policy says the IMF won't let them because they'll say inflation, ra, 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 ra. So I'm worried that when the world has made peace with itself and the North, has made reach some consensus. What will become of the children and women of Nigeria? What will become of the children and women of Angola? In God's name, what will become of the women and children of Mozambique who have been expecting that the wealth of gas offshore will finally transform their life? That, uh, Marcus, is what keeps me awake. Those are the geopolitics that I see. And that is what I don't have the wisdom to resolve. Well, on that note, I think we must conclude. Sheila, that was a a tour de force and education for me and I'm sure for our audience as well. Thank you for giving us so much of your wisdom and your insights. It's been um, a complete pleasure as always to to speak with you. 
Let me just finally plug your website one more time. It's www.sheelakarma.com. That's Sheila, K-H-A-M-A.com. And I know you have a weekly post on local content policy as well. So thank you, Sheila, for your time today. It's been a, a privilege to speak to you. It was wonderful, Marcus, and, and thank you very much for inviting the audiences to my website. And these and other issues are very much what we will be talking about in the next 18 months or so. And thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.